Hello, and welcome to Yuki Life Abroad. With pilgrimage being an important part of faith around the world, the upcoming Rosh Hashanah celebration in the city of Uman has Jews around the world anxious to attend. Given last year's circumstances, the Ukrainian government has made concessions regarding pilgrims to the grave of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. In this week's episode, we take a look at these changes and dive deeper into the history and importance of this famous pilgrimage. So I think we can all agree that 2020 wasn't the best year for everyone. Um, you know, we all were stuck in quarantine and as particularly in this, well, for this episode, we're going to be looking at the pilgrimage on Rosh Hashanah to the city of Uman. So this is a Jewish pilgrimage that happens every single year for Jewish New Year's, which is Rosh Hashanah. And recently there's been an update to what happened um, during last year's pilgrimage because of COVID, their pilgrimage was in jeopardy. And that's what we're going to be covering today. So a bit of context, last year what happened was there it was supposed to be a pilgrimage going to the city of Uman, but because Ukraine closed its borders, a lot of pilgrims ended up being trapped um, in places like Moldova and places like Belarus because they were unable to cross the borders. There were a bit of protests as well, but most of the focus was on uh, the people that were actually stuck there. Now, before we go any further, Brianna, can you explain a little more about what exactly Rosh Hashanah is? Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, Nathan, uh, Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of Jewish New Year, which usually occurs um, in September or October. Um, And it's commemorating when God created Adam and Eve, or in other words, the day that humanity was created. Uh, It literally means head of the year. And just like the head controls the body, um, our actions on Rosh Hashanah have a huge impact on the rest of the year. So as the Rosh Hashanah prayers say, each year on this day, all inhabitants of the world pass before God like a flock of sheep. And it is decreed in the heavenly court who shall live and who shall die, who shall be impoverished and who shall be enriched, who shall fall and who shall rise. Uh, So this is a time of the year for um, observers to atone for their individual sins and their communal sins over the course of the previous year before God closes the books um, and inscribes their fate for the coming year. The central observance of the Rosh Hashanah is the sounding of the shofar, uh, the ram's horn, on both days of the holiday. This is usually blown during morning services uh, up to 100 times. Um, But uh, if you can't come into the synagogue that day, then uh, you have to find other ways to listen to the horn because it's, you know, it's part of the celebration. And it represents the trumpet blast that is sounded at a king's coronation, but it's also a call to repentance. Other observances for the the holiday include lighting candles each evening, uh, eating festive meals, performing tashlich. Yeah, I think we should point out we're going to get a lot of words wrong. So apologies Apologies. for that. Apologies, Tashlik. Which is a prayer said at a body of water where observers ceremonially cast their sins into the water. Uh, And another observance is that people desist from creative work. So it's like a big Sabbath, basically. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, it's obviously a very important um, event. And specifically in Ukraine, there's always a uh, regular pilgrimage that goes to the gravesite of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And so 
this year, now that everything is kind of starting to slowly get back to normal for, um, well, because of COVID, uh, Kiev Post picks, picked up a story from the Jerusalem Post and Ukraina is allowing for vaccinated Israelis to enter Ukraina for the annual pilgrimage to the gravesite. So it is planned to go ahead, but only for people who are vaccinated. So I guess, you know, that's uh, better than what happened last year and hopefully now this pilgrimage can uh, go forward and, uh, yeah, they can have their Jewish New Year. So for those of you that don't know, we are currently in the year 5,781, according to the Jewish calendar. So they're a little bit ahead of us in terms of year. Oh, 5,000. Yeah. Wait, but that's 5,000 since creation? I'm assuming that they count from creation. So this pilgrimage is relatively recent in the scale of history. So it first began in... The year 1811, the year after Rabbi Nachman passed away and was started by uh, one of his closest follower, Rabbi Noson. And the reason that the whole pilgrimage uh, came to Umayn is because that's where Rabbi Nachman is buried. And in his teachings, he said that it was very important for his followers to gather with him during Rosh Hashanah. And so they've carried on that tradition of gathering to celebrate the new year with him. So originally the holiday started off quite small, but throughout time it has grown to become quite popular. And it has now become so large that it is one of Umayn's main economic drivers. Well, I remember you showing me some video of it and there's like so many people there. It's like, yeah, it's like a big celebration like of course it would do that well it's so popular that just before rosh hashanah you have dedicated cargo flights that fly in kosher food to umayn to cater for the thousands of people that arrive so alexa when you mentioned that it's a good uh like relationship building exercise for like ukraine and um israel uh, that was really interesting because the jerusalem post article actually focused on like the political um, aspect of it behind the um, this like change and allowing the pilgrims to enter. So they mentioned that um, Benjamin Netanyahu has a general election coming up, and many of the pilgrims act- are actually voters for what's called voters in what's called the Shash Party. I'm pretty sure, which is basically an Orthodox party. So they were kind of trying to imply that Netanyahu was trying to push for a. Um, like trying to push for this because he wanted those voters to be happy with him going into the election. And they went on to say that um, given Ukraine's economy had actually taken a hit during the pandemic, um, Zelensky also wanted to push to have the, them come in to kind of boost um, Oman's economy again. So they kind of were focusing on like, what does each of these world leaders have to gain from it? And I guess they both had something to gain from it as well. Yeah, but Israeli politics is cut for and it's even more crazier than Ukrainian politics. Yeah, so, so I've heard. <laughs> we won't dive into that rabbit hole today. So yeah, so the ce- the celebrations in Umayn, uh, they're called it's called the Rosh Hashanah Kabbutz, which I think is that's the pilgrimage. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so this pilgrimage united um, Jews from Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, and Poland, and then. Once uh, Umayn became part of the Russian Empire, Jews from Russia, and they it, it grew each year, and it got to the point that they had to build a new synagogue in Umayn because the original synagogue built by Rabbi Nachman was too small to fit everyone in, 
And then, um, however, this all ground to a halt in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over Ukraine and shut the border with Poland. And for the Hasidic Jews in Poland, um, their rabbi, Beatra, created an alternative pilgrimage site in Lublin for them to all gather together to still celebrate the holiday, even though they couldn't be with uh, Rabbi Nachman in person. Now, there were Jews who would secretly cross the border and celebrate the holiday in Ormain. However, the Soviets cracked down on this quite hard. And the last foreigner to celebrate Rosh Hashanah in Ormain was Shamul Horovitz, who was from Palestine and made the journey um, to Poland and then snuck across the border into Ukraine. So I'm like, that is a lot of dedication for back then to go from Palestine to Poland. Yeah, um, that's pretty crazy. Um, and then what's even worse is that because the Soviet Union cracked down on religion, they also, you know, cracked down on people visiting the gravesite of Rabbi Nachman. And one of the ways they did that was by pretending to allow celebrations at the gravesite and giving out official permits to attend. And whoever got an official permit was later arrested and sent to Siberia or executed. Oh my gosh. So, so it was basically a trap. Yes. And then, of course, World War II happened. And so all the Jews in Ulmain were more or less exterminated by the Nazis. And after World War II, when, Urbine, uh, when the Soviets were rebuilding Ulmain, they raised, uh, they were planning to raise the Jewish cemetery and building ha- a housing project there. However, Jews from all over Ukraine raised money and were able to buy the property off the city government and um, rebuild the shrine. I feel like the Soviets do a lot of like redevelopment in <laughs> religious sites because like you have um, St. Michael, um, you obviously have this cemetery. I think I remember one where they destroyed the cemetery and they used the crosses to make bricks for the road. That was the Jewish cemetery in Lviv. They used oh, the gravestones yeah, yeah. as paving stones on the road. So when they were renovating the road in the lead up to like ma- a major event in Ukraine, they like ripped up the road and found all these gravestones and they were like, what? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I feel, yeah, that's a good point. I just realized it's like a recurring theme. And didn't you mention your mama said that they used to store books, oh, grain, yeah. um, something? They, so like the, what the, Roman Catholic yeah, the Roman Catholic Church, they used it as a warehouse to store, yeah, in a church. It's, it's like, come on, man. So once the local Jewish um, community, what was left was able to buy back the cemetery where Rabbi Nachman was um, buried, they were then able to locate his grave by finding the remaining um, wooden beams that were still buried in the ground from when the Nazis destroyed everything and then the Soviets when they reconquered it. And, of course, like, the pilgrimages were still small. So in 1948, 11 Jews across the whole so- from the whole Soviet Union travelled to a mine to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. There's a, some pretty dedicated... 11 people. <laughs> yeah, so... But considering, like, where it's gotten to now, where it's uh, thousands of them rocking up. And then in the 1970s, when the Soviet Union allowed its Jewish citizens to emigrate to Israel, um, they were averaging n- between 9 and 13 Jews visiting Ulmain to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. So the tradition almost died off, and it wasn't until um, per- Perestroika, at the end of the Soviet Union 
where the numbers started to pick up because the Soviet Union relaxed its controls. And in 1989, you had around 800 Jews that visited Umain to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. And then in 1990, the year before Ukraine gained its independence, there was 2,000. And since Ukraine gained its independence, it's been growing remarkably quickly. So in 2000, there were 10,000 people who visited the gravesite. In 2005, there was 20,000. In 2008, 25,000. And then in 2018, over 40,000 visited the gravesite. And we should mention that it's mainly men who visit Umain. And um, there was controversy when some of the rabbis were asking women to stay away from the site because they said they couldn't do proper separation of men and women according to Jewish custom. Oh, right. Because, um, Andre, I know you're going to talk more about this, but he was like one of the, like, I know he was related to one of the, like, the founders of the Hasidic movement. So the separation yeah. thing would be. A big deal for yeah. it. So, yeah. So, now I think we should probably dive into who Rabbi Nachman was. Yeah. So, he goes by many names, most commonly by Nachman of Breslov or uh, also known as Reb Nachman of Breslov. So, those are the most common names that he goes by. And he was born in the town of Medjabish in Podil region, which was then part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. So, like Nathan mentioned earlier... Uh, Nachman was a was the great grandson of uh, Baal Shem Tov, who led the revival of the Hasidic movement, and he combined it with the Torah scholarships. So he he restarted that whole movement, and like Nathan mentioned earlier, would have had similar views. Nachman's main religious philosophy uh, revolved around being close to God and speaking to God in a normal conversation, like you would to a best friend. And he also created the concept of self-secluded meditation to his central thinking. So his concept of the self-secluded meditation was that you'd go out by yourself into uh, into nature where you could converse with God more freely and you could be more expressive like a friend. Nachman didn't develop this over his lifetime, as many would suspect, but he actually started from a young child where he actually said that he avoided the pleasures of this world and his and set his sights on spirituality. And he even paid his teacher extra coins for every page of the central text of rabbinic Judaism, which is the and the primary text of the Jewish religious law, um, beyond the fear that his father had paid to encourage him to be covering more material so he could be more knowledgeable in Judaism. So later on in his life, he moved to Breslov, where he declared... Today we have planted the name of the Breslova Hasidism. This name will never disappear because my followers will always be called after the town of Breslov. So when he was in this town, he came into contact with Nathan Sturzham or Reb Nosom, a 22-year-old Torah scholar in the nearby town of Nimarov. And over the years, um, Reb Nosom became his most uh, his foremost disciple and scribe and recorded all of Nachman's formal lessons. Since Nachman was an important figure in Hasidic Judaism, um, a lot of his teachings have been quite influential in that he rejected the idea of hereditary Hasidic dynasties and taught that each Hasid must search for the tzaddik or saintly or religious person for himself and within himself, as he believed that every Jew could be become one. I'm pretty sure this relates to... The idea 
I'm trying to remember from like a study I did this ages ago. I'm pretty sure the idea is that if someone is considered like a saint, their descendants are also kind of carry that same thing. Oh, and okay. so he was trying to say each person can individually do it within themselves. They don't have to follow the people who came in their family before them. Yeah, that makes it like a good point because then um, it's not just being passed down this like saintly or sainthood really. Yeah. And he also emphasized that each tzaddik could magnify the blessing on the community for his mitzvot, which is the commandment of God. However, the tzaddik cannot absolve uh, anyone of his sin and that they should only be praying to God, not to the rabbi. And the purpose was to confide in the human, their soul to unburden it. Another one of his teaching was that he urged everyone to seek out their own and others' good points in order to approach life in a state of continuous happiness. And if one cannot find good points in himself, then search his deeds. If he can't find one in his deeds, then they were driven by ulterior motives or improper thoughts, then let them search for positive aspects within them. And if you cannot find any positive aspects, then at least be happy that he's a Jew, for this is a good point. And it's got its doing, not his. It's an intense quote. Well, yeah, it's going through like all the steps that you should at least be happy in everything that you do. And at some point, whatever you're doing uh, should be making you happy. And even if you're not doing anything, then be happy for who you are, really. He also placed great stress on living with faith, simplicity and joy. He encouraged his followers to clap, sing and dance, like Alexa mentioned earlier, during or after their prayers, bringing them closer in relationship to God. Just after his engagement with his second wife, he developed tuberculosis. And so his health from there uh, began to decline. And in 1810, a fire broke out in Bratislav, which destroyed his home. And so a group of uh, Jews from the secular Haskalah or Enlightenment movement invited him to live in a mine, providing housing for his illness as it it worsened. So as with any major event, there is obviously going to be some controversies linked to it. And the main ones that really come from all mine are that people complain that the pilgrims do not respect the city and that it places a strain on the local police and utility services. I don't know. How would you guys imagine a pilgrimage? I sort of imagine it like the one uh, where the Muslims go to. Mecca. Yeah. And like in that case, but there's millions of them going isn't there true and i guess in that case you can kind of well mecca's built to cater to millions yeah, of people yeah that's like the whole point is that they're built for uh, a pilgrim true but or oh, this one to uman isn't like an infrequent thing it's not like world youth day like we had a pilgrimage here for world youth day but that's not a recurring event in australia yeah. so we were because of the olympics we were set up for it but a lot of other countries might not be so in that regard it's hard to like, I remember After Us was in Spain. So, if Madrid, for example, wasn't set up, it would have to set up for World Youth Day yeah. for that one pilgrimage. However, this is a constantly recurring pilgrimage every single year. And so, I guess there is a way, like, to kind of develop Uman into a city that is catered for this pilgrimage because it happens all the time. Yeah. So, some of the complaints from locals are that they criticize the pilgrim and pilgrims for being heavily intoxicated and also partaking in the use of light drugs such as cannabis. Really? <laughs> what? And um, 
They say that many of the young men that arrive on this pilgrimage see it as a part as a party event, and they have they have likened it to the Burning Man festivals in America and how wild some of these parties get. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and since the Breslau Hasidic movement has expanded worldwide, they now have congregations in America, England, in Israel itself, and then small con- um, congregations in Ukraine. You have like that mixing of cultures as well when everyone comes to congregate here. And there's also there's been um, cases of violence that have occurred because of members being like pilgrims being very intoxicated and starting fights either amongst themselves or with the local or main population. And so they've had to, on occasion, involve not just the regular police, but riot police to bring it under control. Because I was just about to say, uh, the when they're talking about the, um, it puts a strain on local facilities, they do send Israeli police officers as well. But I guess in this case, you know, if it's... It must be like other parts of the city, so... It, it won't just be, like, the police that are being put on strain. Um, but it's not even just the Ormain people complaining. So, in 2010, an Israeli police officer that was stationed in Ormain said that the people get drunk and crazy in the street, go out to pubs and hit on women and harass them. They do all the types of things that they would never do in Israel, but they come here and feel like they can do it. I feel like that's anyone who goes on holidays. It's like, <laughs> you go overseas and it's like, yeah, party time. But I'm sure it wouldn't be all of them. I'm sure it'd be like you get a lot of people yeah, going, f- going for the spiritual side of it. And yeah, I guess if you place an emphasis on that, that would be a way to kind of maybe mitigate it. I think, uh, but I think Ormain is slowly growing to accommodate all these visitors. However, since it's only a one-off yearly event, it, whatever they do invest in can't be too big. Otherwise, we'll sit empty for... Free, like for the majority of the year, because the only other major attraction in Ulmine is Sofievsky Park, which we mentioned two oh, yeah. episodes previously in the Seven Wonders of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Would you like to go to Ulmine and experience Rosh Hashanah? See, I'd go when it wasn't Rosh Hashanah. I'd like off uh, off the pilgrim or whatever it'd be called. Off pilgrimage time. I don't yeah. know if that's a phrase, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go then because then you could peacefully like walk through and not be interfering. Uh, with their whole experience, really. And, like, I would say good luck trying to actually go and see his grave, like, during the pilgrimage. When there's 40,000 40, people trying to see it. Yeah. It'd sort of be like us going to the Vatican City and it just being full of... Um, it's like Vatican City at Easter. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, actually. I have been there at Easter. It is insane. Did well, even it? on a normal day, the Vatican was crazy. Like, remember when we visited Andre? Like, we went in the morning before everyone rocked up. Mm. It was, like, empty, and then as soon as we walked out at 11 o'clock, there were, like, lines everywhere. (laughs) But you, like, Google St. Peter's Basilica, every photo is, like, empty courtyard. (laughs) They're all taken in the morning. Yeah, there you go. They're tricking everyone. (laughs) Because we we came at 8, like, when they opened the basilica up, and it was, like, it was really nice because, like, you could walk around, like, you know, um, like, pray and whatever you wanted to do. And then at lunchtime when all the tourists rock up, it was crazy. Well, we were there in winter as well, so it'd be even less people. Imagine summer. So we hope that this episode has enlightened you a little bit in the knowledge that, um, you know, while Ukraine may stereotypically be thought of as an Orthodox country, it actually has a rich history of multiple faiths that attract pilgrims from all over the world. In the news this week, 
Ukraine reports record daily COVID-19 deaths for a second day in the road and has registered a daily high of 421 coronavirus-related deaths in the last 24 hours. Ukraine has thanked Australia and Canada for imposing additional sanctions on Russia regarding the construction of the Crimean Bridge linking occupied Crimea to the Russian mainland. Both countries sanctioned both individuals and corporations involved with the construction process. The Crimean Bridge was first opened in 2018 to road traffic and 2019 to rail traffic and is the only physical link between occupied Crimea and Russia. The bridge is most famous for the 2018 incident in the Kerch Strait where Russian naval vessels fired upon and captured three Ukrainian ships and crew. The crew and ships were eventually returned to Ukraine at the end of 2019. Ukraine's Verhovna Rada has passed legislation allowing for the use of e-passports. E-passports can now be used within Ukraine's borders for their holders' identification, confirmation of citizenship and provision of government and other services. The law comes into force on August 23rd, 2021. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content. <laughs>